Father, it's a great honor to gather together knowing that the Lord is present with us to study the word that you've sent to us to be the guide unto our lives. We're thankful, Lord, that you've given to us the truth and that truth, as we believe it and apply it to our lives, has set us free. And Father, we look forward today again to the touch of your Spirit to the working of God in our minds and our hearts to shape us and to make us into the people you would have us to be. I pray, Father, that the words of your scripture will carve in our hearts a better understanding of who you are and what it is you want us to do and what you want to do in us and through us. Father, may we see you today and may your word live before us. Again, we ask your spirit to be our teacher. In Christ's name, amen. I would like for you, if you will, to turn to Genesis chapter 45, and we will read the first eight verses. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, who, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Well, those of you who were here la not here last week uh, missed somewhat the high point of this series of chapters, the high drama of Joseph revealing his identity finally to his brothers. The day came when he was able to do that. It took a long, long process for this to be possible, a process in which God worked in the hearts of those ten brothers to the point where they could accept this truth and truly be united as a family. Circumstances were brought about by God himself in order to prepare the hearts of these ten men for this dramatic encounter, focusing on this day but, of course, the, the drama of the revelation was simply uh, the, the, you might call it the, uh, the beginning of the change that would take place, ultimately the healing that would come to the family. You'll notice that Joseph cleared the room of all the Egyptians. He sent them to other parts of his palace and was alone with his ten brothers. And then he declared with great emotion, and I, I, I don't think that 
we really can grasp the emotional intensity of that hour without having been there. When he finally looked at his brothers and said, I am Joseph. And the scripture is very, very explicit as to the impact of that statement on the brothers. It says, in effect, that they were stunned into speechlessness. They could not answer him. The last thought that they could have imagined was that this man, before whom they had groveled, whom they had feared for at least a year, whom they had hoped they'd never have to see again, this man who was so Egyptian and so powerful, this is Joseph? <laughs> I mean, as I mentioned last week, the last time they saw him, he was just a 17-year-old stripling. And he was pleading for mercy from these same brothers. And their image of him was as this youth, and they simply couldn't see him, transformed over these 20 years into the man that he had become. Of course, he was dressed as an Egyptian. He was you know, prepared as an Egyptian. He spoke Egyptian. He had always spoken with a translator, uh, an interpreter, uh, to his brothers. And so you know, it never even dawned on them that this possibly could be Joseph. And so he couldn't have said anything more foreign to them than those three words, I am Joseph. The scripture tells us also that they became dismayed. And one of the things I pointed out last week is the Hebrew word there, I think, is, is a little bit weakly translated by the word dismayed because it literally means terrified. I mean, these guys were scared to death because they knew what they had done to Joseph. And if this is Joseph, brothers, we're in trouble. We're in big trouble. They didn't believe him, of course, at first. They, they, it was too incredulous, incredible for them to believe. But when he finally said to them, whom you sold into Egypt, they knew at that point he had to be telling the truth because no one knew that they had sold him into Egypt, except the ten brothers and, of course, the uh, Midianites to whom they had sold him and Joseph himself. They had never said a word about it to this one that they referred to as the man all these many months. They had never told him when he asked about their family that their youngest brother had been, you know, before Benjamin anyway, had been sold into slavery into Egypt because that wouldn't have looked too good on their record. And so they made no statement about that. And so there was no way he could have known unless he was speaking the truth. I think, and, and the last point I made last week, in verse 5 of that passage, he says, And do not now be grieved or angry with yourselves. In that statement is a flood of forgiveness. Joseph had in his heart already forgiven his brothers. And now he wants them to accept that forgiveness. And we focused on forgiveness and the essential nature, the key nature of forgiveness in the life of a Christian. We must learn to ask forgiveness. We must learn to accept forgiveness. And we must learn to give forgiveness if we are to live successfully as Christians. And Joseph is an example of this, and the, 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 the situation involving the brothers teaches us these truths. 
because they inadvertently had asked his forgiveness when, when they explained, well, when they spoke amongst themselves of how they had done this evil to him, not knowing they understood their language. And of course, they had admitted it before God when they spoke to him about the evil that they had done, only not letting him know exactly what that evil was. And now they needed to learn to accept forgiveness because he was offering them his forgiveness and he was offering them God's forgiveness because Joseph understood God's nature, at least to the point of the 40 years or so that he had experienced God's character. Today, as we move on in, in this passage, we see that in the second part of that fifth verse, he gives the because. Now, the because, I mean, his forgiveness was not dependent upon the because, but the because helped the brothers to accept the forgiveness. Because you sold me here, for God sent me here before you to preserve life. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. In the 20 years Joseph had spent in Egypt, he had literally become a man, not only physically and emotionally, but spiritually he had grown up into a mature man before God. And in the process, he had come to know that it is God who arranges the affairs of the, in the lives of his people. And so he could see clearly that although his brothers had perpetrated evil against him, and certainly that was in his mind for many years, it was God who was behind it all. It was God who had sent him ahead to be the deliverer. The brothers had sinned against him, and there was no way that could be erased as sin because it was sin. Their attitude was a sinful attitude when they did it. But that did not remove him from God's sovereign power. And that, I think, is such a critical thing for us to always remember. People can do against us things which are hurtful. Christians can hurt us. But that does not remove us from God's sovereign grace and power. There are people who, who quit the church because in some church, somebody did something that hurt them, and so they, 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 they blame the whole church as an institution, if you will, and, and won't go anymore because they have been hurt. Well, woe to those who hurt fellow believers, but God does not lose control of our lives. He is sovereign, and he knows what kinds of pains and trials we're going through, and God is still Lord in our lives. God even used their sin to accomplish his purpose. I, I put on the outline there, if you have one before you, uh, the passage, well-known passage in Philippians chapter 2, a couple of the verses there, 12 and 13 from Philippians 2. And, and I think this, this passage, which I hope many of us know by heart, helps us to, to understand not only the truths from, from this lesson that we're looking at in Genesis, but how it applies to our lives on an ongoing basis. Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, 
Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It says there that God is there doing this work. It's not that maybe he might be there or he could be, but if we are God's children, he is there both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And sometimes it's hard to see his good pleasure working because of the hurt we're experiencing at the time. I mean, we may be going through a divorce. We may go, be going through bankruptcy. We may be going through a terrible accident. We may be going through what might be a terminal illness. And we think, how can God be at work in this? But he is. And, and that's where our faith has to be placed. No matter how difficult the scene may be, we have to believe that God is at work. And Joseph learned that the hard way, didn't he? Doing right. He spent years in prison for doing good. And yet God miraculously raised him from prison and exalted him on high. For what purpose? For God's purpose. He didn't glorify Joseph because Joseph was worthy of being glorified, but because Joseph had a role to play in God's sovereign plan. Later, Joseph would express the clear understanding of the sovereignty of God in all situations. When his brothers were afraid, Jacob had died. And now there was no one to stand between them and Joseph. And the brothers were afraid. You know, they had been forgiven. They had hopefully accepted forgiveness. But they had not forgotten what they had done. And they were certain Joseph hadn't forgotten. And they were afraid of retribution. Turn to the 50th chapter of Genesis. We'll be getting there eventually, but let's read ahead here. Just in case the rapture occurs before we get there, we <laughs> need to look at verse 15. Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father, charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. This man was a man of great perception, given to him by the Spirit of the living God. And, and, and Joseph you know, makes it so clear. Am I in God's place? Do I have a right to do what God himself would not even do? I mean, God has forgiven you, so how could I hold a grudge against you? So often we forget that. If God has forgiven, 
How dare we hold a grudge against another? You meant it for evil, but God intended it for this present result, the preserving of many lives. And the whole nation, few in number at that time, 70 souls, would be preserved. And of course, the line of Messiah would thus continue to live. And it could not be otherwise, because God is sovereign. God uses what is intended for evil to accomplish his purpose. He does this all the time. But, even so, he still holds those responsible who perpetrate the evil. For example, Scripture clearly tells us that God used Assyria to punish the nation of Israel for its rejection of God and his power in the lives of the nation. And God sent the Assyrian hordes into the nation of Israel. And Sargon, the king, captured Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, about 721 B.C., and destroyed the city. And you could today can walk through the ruins of Samaria. That nation, however, would be held responsible for how it carried out God's dictates here. The nation of Babylon was used to discipline Judah, the southern kingdom. And that discipline came under the leadership of a man known as Nebuchadnezzar II, the greatest king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And he, between 606 and 586, three times captured the city of Jerusalem, the third time destroying the city. And that nation was carried into captivity. Not destroyed, but later returning. God held Assyria and Babylon responsible for how they dealt with his people and to whom they gave credit for their victory. By what power did they conquer Israel and Judah? What is really interesting about this is even in the pages of history, although secular historians, of course, don't acknowledge it, but you, you can see the, the preserving hand of God because the Assyrian Empire, at its height, engulfed almost the entire, uh, what's later known as the Fertile Crescent, from the Persian Gulf over through the, the southern plains uh, or the northern plains of Syria and all the way down to the borders and even including a part of Egypt. But there was an island a little island that was preserved. That island was called Judah. And it was because that little island was there that we have the whole scenario involving Sennacherib and the story reported to us in 2 Kings uh, of how that, that uh, great emperor led this mighty force down there to, to make sure that this little area called Judah was in submission to him as all other areas had been within his empire and, and yet, because he exalted himself and said, I'm going to carry your God away in a cage like I've carried all the other gods away in a cage, and because there was a wise king on the throne of Judah, a man by the name of Hezekiah, who took the letter that Sennacherib sent to him, a letter in which he said, you might as well surrender because I've got this great army and I've conquered all the other gods, your God won't help you. He sent the letter 
to Isaiah. He read the letter himself personally before God and asked God what he thought of the letter. And Isaiah the prophet sent word back from the Lord that not even one single arrow will fly over the wall of the city of Jerusalem from that evil army. And you know the account that happened after that. God wiped out the army of Sennacherib without a battle being fought. God may use ungodly people to discipline his people in some way, but they are responsible for how they deal with that people and to whom they give credit. God says, I will have no other gods before me. Uh, not even the gods of Nineveh would stand before him. And so how do you explain the loss of 185,000 men without a battle being fought? And the scripture tells us that when Sennacherib went home, some years later, his own sons assassinated him as being an incompetent. And there arose in his place yet a third son to be emperor. Judgment came on both Assyria and Babylon because although they were used by God to carry out God's purposes, they did not glorify God and, and they did evil to the nations that they conquered. And so God held them responsible in the year 612, Nineveh fell. And, and we have the passages uh, that are given to us from the minor prophets, oh, woe to Nineveh, that great city. And that city fell, destroyed, and its armies crushed. And then, of course, we have Babylon. Babylon, that great city, one of the greatest cities of all antiquity, a city that was uh, thought to be impregnable. The one that Daniel reports uh, Nebuchadnezzar standing on the roof of his palace and saying, is this not great Babylon which I have built? Well, God, interestingly enough, responded to that question. <laughs> and uh, Nebuchadnezzar ate grass for seven years. I don't know which is worse, eating grass or crow, but he did both, I guess. <laughs> and God dealt with Babylon. I don't know if I don't remember if I put it on the outline, but Isaiah chapter 47, beginning at verse 5. This is such a beautiful passage illustrating this point so clearly. Isaiah 47, beginning at verse 5. Sit silently and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you will no more be called the queen of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You did not show mercy to them. On the aged, you made your yoke very heavy. Yet you said, I shall be a queen forever. These things you did not consider, nor remember the outcome of them. Now then hear this, you sensual one, who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come upon you suddenly in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come on you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells. And you felt secure in your wickedness, and said, 
no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil will come upon you now, or come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. And disaster will fall on you, for which you cannot atone. And destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. And it did. And of course, we read the account of that in the book of Daniel. As Belshazzar, the regent for his father, Nabonidus, was ruling in Babylon, and it was in one night that the city fell to the armies of the Medes and the Persians who were outside the city. And he broke in that night and captured the city and destroyed it along with thousands of people who died, including Belshazzar himself. But God's messenger, God's prophet, was preserved. He not only was preserved in that hour of destruction, he went on to be God's prophet yet in the succeeding empire. That tenth verse in the passage just read in Isaiah, I think is so fitting today. It's so applicable in our day in which we live. And it seems that we have so many high and mighty running around telling us how we ought to live and how God is irrelevant and how through our knowledge we will be able to achieve salvation, as it were. And you felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me, there is no God, he doesn't see what I'm doing, I do as I wish. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. Whoever lived in a day and an hour when the wisdom and the knowledge out there in the world has been such a delusion as it is today. For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I am not accountable to God or because there is no God or I am God. This is the belief of many, and it's tragic. We who believe in the Bible are thought to be naive, medieval, Victorian, or some other such nice term. And I suppose we ought to wear those badges uh, with pride in many ways. Even as the word Christian was first used in a derogatory manner, those Christians, you know, those followers of Christ. And yet today, it is our badge of honor. We're looking here at a universal law, if you will. What, what we read there in Isaiah, uh, the same principle comes through to us in, in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 18, again, you know it well, Matthew 18, verse 5, And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck, and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. There had to be a Judas, but woe to that man Judas. There had to be the discipline and the punishment of Israel and Judah by Assyria and Babylon, but woe to those nations 
by whom it came, because they did not give God glory, they could have. They did not treat the conquered nations with compassion, they could have. But rather, as the scripture says, the old people, they put heavy yokes on, indicating how they mistreated the population as they captured. And of course, Assyria is noted for being one of the most vicious nations in history in terms of the way it treated conquered peoples. And we know how they treated conquered peoples because they even carved it in bas-relief on their palace walls. We today talk a lot about freedom. We are free in Christ, and that is true. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, and if Christ has set you free, you know, by this truth you are free indeed. But our freedom ends where we cause another of God's people to stumble. That is why I think it is so important that we guard our attitudes, we guard our words, and we guard our actions. We, we can't just flippantly live through life saying, I'm a Christian and I'm, you know, just do what comes naturally and I'm sure I'll do the right thing because I'm a Christian. I don't think so. We have to be on guard. We have to seek to have a Christ-like attitude in all things that we do. It doesn't come naturally. What is a Christ-like attitude? Well, for one thing, it's thinking what Christ would do in a particular situation. What would Christ say? Would he say what we're about to say? Would he do what we're about to do? Would he go where we're thinking of going? Would he eat or drink what we're thinking of eating or drinking? Would he wear what we're considering wearing? Which in our society today is becoming more and more a major issue because of the uh, rampant immorality of our society. It really might seem difficult to live that way. You mean every time I walk, I've got to think, oh no, what's Christ going to do in this situation? I, I just can't be myself. Well, if you think of it that way, it's going to be a very, very difficult row to hoe. If we try to do it in our own strength, we're not going to make it. And people are going to say, well, if that's a Christian, psst, I'm as good as that. I don't need that. But in actuality, it becomes relatively easy if we are doing two or three things. If we are committed to the study of God's word, and then, as James says, not hearers only, but doers, we are obedient to it, so we study it and we obey it, and if we are people committed to prayer. If those things are true, then it does become easy to live in a Christ-like manner because our minds are saturated with what Christ would think because it's saturated with the Word of God, which, which is the thoughts of God on, before us in paper. And as we're <clears throat> saturated with the, with the mind of Christ, then we are always brought up short. When, when we're thinking of doing something or saying something or being somewhere or whatever it might be, the Spirit of God brings us up short if we are people of the Word, obedient to the Word, and people of prayer, because it is the Word of God and prayer that forms the mind of Christ in us. That's why if we aren't students of the Word, 
And if we aren't people of prayer, we have such a hard time being a Christian. It's nigh unto impossible. You know, it's like trying to become a marathon runner without ever training and without eating properly. You'll never make it. The same thing will happen to you that happened to that man you probably read about in the paper. I guess it was yesterday. He took his two sons on a hike and dropped dead of a heart attack at 43 on a mountainside. We have to train for the work that's set before us, and we do it through the study of the Word, through becoming people of prayer. That makes us quicker to respond to the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Scripture clearly teaches that if we are God's children, the Spirit of God dwells within us. But we may not listen to Him. Huh. And, and that's why the Word of God and prayer is so critical, because it causes us to be quicker to listen to Him and quicker to turn off the world, the flesh, and the devil, which are always yelling in our ears with this cacophony of godlessness and evil. I know this isn't on the outline, but as I was looking at this, this passage in Romans kept coming to my mind, so let me just read a couple of verses from Romans 8. Romans 8, 5, and 6. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. You probably have noticed that the mind is not naturally disciplined. Those of us who are in school, teach school, are students in school, are, are well aware of that. We have to discipline our mind because it wants to do something else than what we're being told we ought to do. And, and what comes naturally is not the things of God, it's the things of the world. And so we have to make sure we establish the mindset on the things of the Spirit so that we will do the will of God. And, and that is what happened to Joseph through the process of those years, although he had no scripture to go by. No scripture was written. The Spirit of God was upon that man and, and helped him to develop a mindset on God and, and to think how many uh, strikes were against that man living a totally heathen, alien kingdom. I passed these out, oh, several weeks ago. I have a few copies left, if any of you didn't get them. There's a little set of handouts I gave on Egypt. One is sort of the outline of Egyptian chronology, early Egyptian chronology, talking about how the Word of God pick, uh, penetrates Egyptian society at various points in time. And then uh, there was one on ancient Egyptian religion. And you read through that, and, and you can gain from that an understanding that Egypt was a hostile place for a man of God. And yet God preserved him in the midst of that, 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 that spiritually hostile environment without a Bible. What excuse have we? I mean, our environment is becoming increasingly hostile, but it's not near as hostile as was the environment Joseph found himself in because there wasn't a glimmer of truth in it except that which was in his heart. At least there are still points of light in, in our society, and I'm talking about true evangelical churches. 
So we have a whole lot less reason to not be obedient than did Joseph. Now, we might be tempted to think uh, that since God is sovereign and turns evil into good for his people, then it's no big deal if we sin against our brother because God will turn it into good. But what is true for nations is true for us as individuals. If God held Assyria and Babylon responsible, he holds us responsible. I, I put on there Luke 17, and part of that is a, is a repetition of what we read in Matthew 18, but it goes on from there, so I'd like to read that passage, the first four verses of Luke 17. And he said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. So in the midst of, of daily living, we are probably going to offend another brother at some point, another sister in Christ. But the key to this is what we're told here, to ask forgiveness, to give forgiveness, even as Joseph gave forgiveness to his brothers. You know, e even with the mind of Christ, we might inadvertently at one point in time, uh, on one day, say something, do something that another person takes offense at. We may not have intended it that way, but we didn't know how they were thinking that day. We didn't know what had happened to them that morning when they got up. And, and so we said, or just, well, you know, if that happens and we find out about it, we must seek forgiveness and the person must give forgiveness. And if we blow it again the next day, this is the key here. You know, we, we are always reminded of the passage in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And the implication there, you've heard messages on it, I'm sure, is this is a continuous action passage. It's not a salvation verse. It's a verse for believers. And it's a continuous deal. If we keep asking, God keeps forgiving. And so we are to do for one another. And so Joseph did. He offered his brothers his forgiveness and he offered them God's forgiveness. And then he added a very positive note. Actually, God was sending me ahead of you into Egypt in order to preserve our family. You meant it for evil, as we read in the 50th chapter, but God meant it for the preserving of a nation. God knew that a great famine was coming in Egypt and all over the Near East. And God knew that Satan would use it, he would endeavor to destroy God's covenant people through this famine. I, I don't know, I, I trust none of us can put ourselves in Satan's shoes, but we might think a little bit of how we might have thought. You know? Ah, it's my chance. I'll wipe out these people. God made this covenant with Abraham and that he's going to bless the nations of the world through, through Abraham, but I'm going to destroy them and it isn't going to happen. God knew what Satan would endeavor to do and that he would attempt to stop God from blessing the nations through the seed of Abraham. But God used 
Satan's evil efforts to bring good to Joseph, to Judah, to the ten brothers, to the whole clan of Jacob, and interestingly enough, even to the pagan land of Egypt. It's amazing. God, we can't really grasp it, but God delights in turning what Satan intends for evil and destruction into the accomplishment of his plan, even often for the heathen. Like today, we can think of this great tragedy of the U.S. Air Flight that went into the ground back there at Pittsburgh, and we think, how could anything good come of this? But I believe that there are people connected with that somehow who are people of God and who are praying, and that God will even bring that tragedy to bring good into individual lives, that maybe some will come into the kingdom of God because of this tragedy. Maybe there will be a, a message preached at a funeral which will reach family members of those who were killed in this crash. And God will turn it to good. You know, we have this tendency to turn on the news. You know, it's one horrible thing after another. Oh, they stick in a little thing every once in a while to boil you up about how some dog, you know, uh, was helped. Uh, they put a prosthesis on this dog so he can live a happier life, you know. But, but rarely is there much good as we watch the news, right? Do we stop and think, you know, I'm sure we think, oh God, how, how these terrible things are happening and, and how our society is being swept by evil, but, but do we fail to think of the fact that somehow God is turning this for good in the lives of his people and even bringing people into his kingdom through this? God is not bound. His hands aren't tied behind his back looking down at the world and thinking, oh no, I wish I could do something about it. He's there. And he's at work. And our prayer needs to be, God, 130-some people perished horribly in a wreck a few days ago, but somehow, Lord, I pray that you will glorify yourself and touch lives through that tragedy. There may have been believers on that plane. Well, they're in heaven now. Unfortunately, I'm sure there were a lot of unbelievers, and they're not in heaven. And hopefully others will be brought into the kingdom because of this tragedy. Joseph revealed that the tragedy is not over, brothers. There are five more years of hard famine ahead of us. So bad will this famine be that nobody will even bother to plow the ground because there's no hope of harvest. Why plow if nothing's going to be produced? God had not sent Joseph into Egypt primarily to save Egypt, but to save his people Israel. But notice how God's blessings overflow even onto the heathen. God's purpose was to preserve the nation of Israel, but that blessing overflowed onto Egypt. This nation has been preserved for lo these 200 years because there is salt and light in this nation. God may have brought about the collapse of communism in Russia because there are believers in Russia. And that truth overflowed with blessing on the whole nation, even though the nation is going through horrible times now. But God is at work. God would, through this tragedy, bring or preserve his people by a great deliverance, we're told, here in this passage. Literally meaning a great escape. They would escape this great calamity through God's mercy and only through his mercy. 
Five more years of famine. We have never been in a situation in this country as dire as that. I mean, nowadays, there's always hope. If you have a famine here or a drought here, you can transport it from somewhere else. But in those days, you know, if the whole region was under drought, there was nowhere to get food from and no means to move it, even if there was a source. As we come to an end, let's turn to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra went back after towards the end, at the end of the captivity. The nation had been captive in Babylon and now had gone back. And Ezra went to the land and he found sin rampant. God had delivered them. He had allowed them to return from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And yet there was sin. The, the people were intermarrying with the heathen people that God had clearly told his people not to intermarry with. And Ezra was in great distress. Ezra chapter 9 verse 8. But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in this holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. Verse 13. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since thou, our God, hast requited us less than our iniquities deserve and hast given us an escape remnant as this. Verse 15, O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we have been left an escape remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our guilt, for no one shall stand before thee because of this. A great escape. A great escape for Israel over to the for, for the for Judah over back to Jerusalem. A great escape God was planning for his people through Joseph. And then finally, Joseph said, because of all that God had done for him, he knew that God had brought him to Egypt. And God had made him, in effect, a father unto Pharaoh, meaning a primary counselor, the primary counselor of the Pharaoh, advising him in all of his major, major decisions. And God had put it in the heart of a pagan king to make Joseph the true chief executive of Egypt, including the affairs of the royal palace itself. Why did Pharaoh think, I'm going to make this man counselor? It, you know, I'm prime minister here in Egypt so that his family can be saved, so that the line of Messiah can be saved? No way. He was thinking of his nation alone, but God had a bigger plan. And Pharaoh was his instrument, and Joseph was his man.